Our family was blessed this past week with a tremendous blessing. Uh, my wife Chaya and I merited to have a new baby on Sunday night. And uh, we're very thankful and we're very appreciative, of course, to the Almighty for this tremendous gift. And please, God, the bris will be tomorrow. We were originally scheduled to do it in the Torch Center, but it's supposed to be one of the coldest days in recorded history. There's this big Arctic blast polar vortex that's descending upon Texas. And for some reason, the people who built the Torch Center decided, it's Houston. You don't need heating. Air conditioner is enough. So I said it's not smart to do a bris in the Torch Center when it's scheduled to be like in the 20s. So we're doing it at the Young Israel of Houston. But what I wanted to share with y'all today is what happened on Friday night. So as you may or may not know, the Friday night after a baby's born, there's a get-together, a party, a celebration called the Shalom Zachar, which Shalom means either welcome or peace. Zachar means a male. It's only after a male. And what effectively happens is there's a there's a party for the people in the neighborhood, and people drop off cakes and cookies, and uh, we go to the liquor store and get some spirits. I got some tequila and bourbon and scotch, and we had some beer. And I told someone, I said, "This is the this is the first time I've been at the liquor store." Since the last time I made a Shalom Zachar, I even have some leftovers from the scotch I bought uh, almost two years ago. But uh, we bought 50 beers. I don't know, I, I don't know how much they get, how much, how much beer people drink. And a couple of bottles of scotch and some bourbon and um, Arak. And um, actually, we didn't finish all the beer. There's a, a gentleman in the neighborhood who's, whose wife is expecting. I said to him, I touched him after Shabbos. I says, if your wife has a baby boy... I got plenty of beer for you. And uh, he responded, actually, we had a baby boy this morning. So this upcoming Friday night will be a Shalom in their house. And last night I dropped off 35 beers by the front door. So now they have beer for their, for their Shalom Zachar. So we're going to have a Shalom Zachar on Friday night. And now my friend's going to have one this upcoming Friday night. And it was lovely. There were lots of food and we invited the whole neighborhood. Everyone came. All sorts of singing and, and divrei Torah, words of Torah. And as I merited with all my boys, I spoke by the Shalom Zachar. And I want to share with you today what I said on Friday night uh, to the assembled guests at the at the Shalom Zachar in our home. Now, there are, there were different cohorts, you know, different waves. I, it started like at 8, 15, 8, 30. And the last person showed up like after, like 1130-ish. So it's like a pretty long party. And they sit around and there's lots of chatting and, you know, a few of the rabbis from the neighborhood, I asked them to speak as well. But I, I actually spoke twice because there's, the, you know, different groups. The first wave came and I spoke. And then the second wave came and I said, well, I still see some people here that were, that were present. First time I spoke, so I said, I have to speak something else. I got I can't repeat content. You know, I got a reputation to uphold here. So I actually divided what I'm going to tell you today into two different parts, especially because it's a little bit longer than what is typically expected for a Shalom Zachar speech. So I said, you know what? Let me divide it up 
into two different uh, parts, and uh, then I can share with you the entirety of of the message. But I don't I don't want to inundate the crowds. This is what I said Friday night for the Shalom Zachar uh, for our new baby boy. Why do we have the Shalom Zachar? Why do we have this ubiquitous custom? The Friday night after a baby is born, there is. A celebration. What's the reason for it? So all the sources agree that it relates to what transpired to the baby at birth. In particular, the Talmud tells us that a child, before they're born, they know all of Torah. Once they're born, well, the angel comes, slaps them on the mouth, and makes them forget it. So the child went through a very traumatic experience. Imagine you, you know all of Torah, everything. And suddenly you show up this big bad world, angel comes to smash you in your mouth, and poof, you forget it all. That's a, that's a tragedy. That's a devastation for the child. That's a calamity for the child. We have to comfort the baby. The baby's mourning to a certain extent. So we get together and uh, we sing and we try to raise the spirits of the baby. That's the idea that everyone says, all the commentaries, when they explain this custom. The Talmud tells us, again, the the Talmud, the book of Nida, page 30b, it's a very iconic teaching of the Talmud. It talks about the child in utero and uh, before they're born, there's a candle lit upon its head and it sees from one end of the world to the other and it knows the whole Torah and it's time to be born. Angel comes, smash it on its mouth. Major said, forget the whole Torah. The angel adjures the child, make sure you're righteous, live a good life. If you're righteous, it's great. If not, you're in big trouble. And the baby is born. So the child comes into the world totally ignorant, knows nothing about Torah. And now it's a long process to try to recoup, to recapture some of the Torah that it had previously. That's the idea that is the cause of this of this custom. So there's a few questions. You know, at the at the Shalom Zachar, they always put out chickpeas. Always. Every Shalom Zachar, you go to this chickpeas. Why? Because chickpeas, that's a food of mourning. It's like round and round things, just like you know, Jacob made lentils to to you know for to bereave for the bereaving father, because because Abraham died. Round things are symbolic of a way to comfort those who are mourning. So we have chickpeas. But I, I said to the crowd, I said, look, look around. I see lots of alcohol and drinks and candy and all sorts of delicacies. And everyone's chatting and we're singing this divrei Torah. This does not look like a somber experience that would be appropriate for, for mourning. It looks quite jubilant. So what's the inconsistency? If we're really mourning here for the terrible lost child had of, of their intrauterine Torah, we should sit on the ground and the food should be poor and meager and we should be, you know, crestfallen. But we're upbeat and we're sinking and this is a party atmosphere. Why are we so happy? Why is there this inconsistency, this disparity between the purported reasons for this custom and how we and how we enact it, how we live it, how we 
actually fulfill it? Question number one. Question number two, it seems to be unrelated, but we'll see how it's related. Genesis chapter one, very beginning of the Torah. After a week of creation, the verse tells us that God assesses, so to speak, his creation. And he looks and he sees all that he made and behold, vihine, behold, tov ma'od. It is very good. Tov is, is good. Ma'od is very good. So it's very good. God assessed his creation and determined that it was exceedingly good. And the Midrash tells us something very puzzling. Midrash says, what does it mean when the verse says that God saw all that he made and it was good? Tov. It was good. Very good. Tov ma'od. Says the Midrash. Tov. Good. That is a reference to the Yetzer Tov. To the good inclination. And when it says Tov Me'od, very good. Exceptionally good. That's a reference to the other inclination. The Yetzer. Hurrah. The bad inclination. The evil inclination. That is exceedingly good. That's what the Midrash says. Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. And obviously this raises a lot of questions. Wait, what? The Yetzirah is called Ra for a reason. It's the evil inclination. How could you tell me that something which is Ra, which is bad, which is evil, is not just good. It's exceptionally good. It's Tov Ma'od. The Yetzirah, that's the force that is designed, is engineered to get us to reject God, to take a bad path, to deviate away from God's intended way of living. Yet the Midrash tells us that this is the embodiment of all that is good. Not just good, great. How do we understand that? How can we say that the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, is very good? Now, I, I will tell you, I was warned in shul. One of my friends says, I'm coming to the Shalom Zakhar tonight, but I don't want you to repeat any content. Don't tell me what you said by your son Shlomo's Shalom Zachary. Son. He's, don't, don't, I, I remember what you said. I said, wait a minute. What did I say? And he says to me what I said. I said, don't worry about it. Not only will I not repeat, it's going to be way better. That's what I told him. And he came. And when he came, I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to speak. And so I, so the way I, I, I structured, I said, I said to the crowd, I said, listen, I'm going to tell you a little bit of an idea that I said in the past. And then we're going to take a new approach. So I said to them, let's look at the approach and let, let, let's kind of talk about what we said in the past, but we'll use that in a, we'll take it that in a different direction. A child in utero knows all of Torah. When they're born, the angel comes and smacks them and makes them forget the Torah. Now, if, if this was all you knew, that the angel comes and smacks the child, makes them forget the whole Torah, and I would ask you, where do you imagine on the baby, on the child, on the embryo, where, where do you imagine the child would be smacked? You want to get rid of the Torah. Where would you imagine, if you didn't know the location of the striking of the angel, where do you imagine the angel would hit the child to make the child forget the whole Torah? So what we would have said is that you smack the child on the head. That's where the the Torah ostensibly lies. But the Talmud says otherwise. The Talmud says, no, no, no. You smack the child on their mouth. 
Why would you smack the child in the mouth? That seems to be not the place where you would imagine the Torah would lie. So the Maharal, one of the great commentators, he says something unbelievable. He says, you have it all wrong. We think that the angel is trying to make the child forget the whole Torah. That's not what's happening over here. The angel is doing something else. And as a result of, of that other thing, the child's forgetting the Torah. But the child forgetting the Torah is a byproduct of what the angel's actually doing. And he explains. At birth, the Talmud tells us, the child gets a Yetzirah, evil inclination. Before birth, there is no evil inclination. But at birth, child gets the evil inclination. And that's what the angel's doing. Angel's slapping the child on the mouth because that's, that's actually the conduit, he explains, where the Yetzirah enters the person. And as a result of that, once the Yetzirah is present, then as a result of that, automatically, as a byproduct of that, the Torah gets forgotten. And why does the Torah get forgotten? Not because the Torah is eliminated, the Torah has been deleted, so to speak. No, the Yetzirah comes and it takes over and it supplants the primacy of the soul. And the soul is still there, but it's so deeply embedded within the child, it's inaccessible. It's inaccessible to the child. And what the, what the Talmud, Talmud's saying, the angel comes smash him in the mouth, it's not to make him forget the Torah, it's to insert the Yitzhara. And as a result of that, the Torah is effectively forgotten. It's still there, it's still present, but it's inaccessible. The links between the child and the Torah has been severed due to the insertion of the Yitzhara. That's what the Maharal says. And in truth, it's, it's obvious that that is the case. And I'll tell you why. We have two things happening here. The Talmud tells us two things happen at birth. A, it tells us the child forgets the whole Torah. B, it tells us the child gets the Yitzhahara. Now, we would think those are two separate things. Maral tells us, no, they're, they're just two elements of one transformation that happens. But there's a, a proof, an incontrovertible proof that these are the same thing. When the Talmud tells us that the child forgets the whole Torah at birth, it cites a verse in Scripture to prove its point. And the verse that it cites is Lefetach Chatas Rovates. It's what God told Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis. At the entrance, sin crouches. And that's the proof that the child forgets the whole Torah at birth. At the entrance, child enters the world, that's when sin crouches because now you forgot the whole Torah. When the Talmud elsewhere tells us that the child at birth gets the Yetzirah, it also cites scriptural proof. And you know what? It cites the exact same verse. When the Talmud tells us that the child gets the Yetzirah at birth, it also cites a proof and it uses the same verse, Lefetach chatas roves, at the entrance, sin crouches. Now we know if, if you have one verse, you can only te- teach me one thing from it. 
So from the fact that the Talmud utilizes the exact same verse to tell us two things. A, child gets the Yetzirah. B, child forgets the whole Torah. It must be that it's the same thing. Only one thing happens over here. Child gets the Yetzirah. And as a result, consequently, the child forgets the Torah. And therefore, only one verse is needed. And this I didn't say. All, I'm elaborating here more than I said Friday night because, you know, the, the crowd's a little antsy. Y'all are a captive audience, right? Where, where are you going to go? They, they were antsy. So I have to kind of really say this really fast. But anyhow, it's also interesting, and I pointed this out in my book at the very early chapters, the, the Talmud tells us that when the child's in utero, they have a, a candle on their head. And we know candle is always a euphemism for the soul. The child before they're born, the, the, the candle's on their head. The verse in scripture tells us, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, the candle of Hashem is the soul of man. But then it tells us, the verse continues in, in Proverbs, Chofes Kochadre Button. It is searching in the, in the chambers of the person's innards. So the question that can be posed is, wait a minute, is the candle on the head or is the candle in the innards? And the answer is, before the child's born, the candle's on the head. There's no Yesarat, so the, the soul is supreme. And the soul knows all of Torah, and therefore the person, the child knows all of Torah. Comes along the Yetzirah, and now the candle has been submerged into the inner, so to speak, of the baby of the child, and therefore the candle's still present, but it is far away from the person's consciousness. And that's why we've spoken about this in the past. When Abraham, when he studied Torah, the the Midrash tells us, where did he learn Torah from? So the Midrash says he, he studied from his kidneys. His two kidneys became like two wellsprings of Torah, which is a very strange way to describe Abraham's Torah study. And the explanation is that Abraham was able to access the soul, the candle that was buried within him, like in his internal organs, he was able to remove the influence of the Yetzirah thus restore things the way they were before a child's born, and therefore he was able to access the Torah that was always there within them. So in previous, in previous Shalom Zachars, we talked about this idea that the child forgot the whole Torah, but, but it's still there. And there's something to celebrate about the fact that even though the Torah may be very distant from the child, and the person's access to it may be curtailed and it's effectively forgotten. But the truth is within the child, deep, 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 deep within the child, the Torah is still there and nothing has been lost. And there's a certain path towards the rediscovery of that Torah in the event the child overcomes the Yetzirah. So there's something to celebrate about the fact that even though it's been forgotten, it's not been lost, and it's still there to be rediscovered. That's what we spoke about in the past. This time, we took a bit of a different approach. There's a very memorable episode in the Torah about a pregnant woman having a rough pregnancy. And of course, we're talking about Rebecca. Rebecca, she... Spends 20 years married with 
with infertility. And Isaac prays and Rebecca prays and God answers them and she becomes pregnant. And the verse tells us that she had a difficult pregnancy. The children were fighting, were scuffling within her. And she was exasperated by it. And she went to go speak to the prophet. And the prophet tells her that, well, you have twins and there are two nations within you. And they're going to always be at odds with each other. They will have a seesaw relationship when one is up, the other is down. But ultimately, the younger one will triumph over the older one. This is in the beginning of Parshas, told us in chapter 25 of Genesis. Now, Rashi tells us the significance of this episode. Like, Why does it matter what was happening to her when she was, when she was pregnant? What's the significance of the, the jostling that happened within her? So Rashi says very, uh, very uh, memorably that these two babies that were, th- were within Rebecca, they had a very different set of desires. And whenever Rebecca would walk past the Academy of Shame and Aver, the, 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 the Torah study halls of Shame and Aver, Jacob would sense that he is in close proximity to holiness and he would say, I want to go join. And he would start making a move. He would start jostling to try to be born, to be able to go and enter the academy. And then when she passed a house of idolatry, Asav was awakened. He was stirred and he made a move and he wanted to be born. And that's why she was so disturbed by this. And she goes to the prophet. The prophet tells her, well, no, there's, there's two children here. Maybe she had originally thought there was only one, and she, she sensed very conflicting interests for the baby. There's two. One wants this, and one wants that. And ultimately, the younger one will triumph over the older one. That's what we're told. And of course, Jacob is born. Asaph was born first, then Jacob, and Jacob's grabbing onto the heel. We know the story. But there's a major problem with this, with this narrative. We establish very, very firmly that the child before they're born does not have a Yetzirah, does not have a desire for evil. Yet Asav, well, Asav is stirring, is making a move to be born when they pass the house of idolatry. So how can it be that Asav is desirous of idolatry before he's born? Well, there's no Yitzhara prior to birth. That's a that's a strong question. Now, if you study the citations very carefully, you'll find an absolute stunning correlation here. And this is, there's a few parts here, so kind of listen carefully. When the Talmud talks about the arrival of the Sahara, the Talmud concludes that the Yetzirah arrives at birth. Not beforehand, at birth. But there was a debate that happened before that. The, the Talmud says, well, when do you get the Yetzirah? Do you get it 
at the time of conception or at the time of birth? That's a fair question. But what's interesting about this, what's unusual about this is the personalities, the people who were party to this debate. The Talmud tells us that this was a debate between Rabbi Judah the Prince, the greatest sage of his era, the architect of the Mishnah, and his Roman counterpart, the Roman Emperor, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. He was a great philosopher who became an emperor, and they they were colleagues and uh, contemporaries. Now, the Talmud gives us these great stories how they would go study Torah together. There was a tunnel connecting their two palaces. And the Talmud cites a few of the debates that they had. And the Talmud tells us that Antoninus asked this question to Rabbi Judah the Prince. When does the Yetzirah, when does it begin to operate within a person? Is it at the time of conception or at the time of birth? So, Rabbi Judah the Prince responded, it's from the time of conception. And then Antoninus challenged that, wait a minute, if the child in utero would have a Yetzirah, the child would kick their mom and would force their way out. So it must be, it must be that it is from birth. That was the retort, the response, the rebuttal of Antoninus. And Rabbi Judah the Prince says, you know what? You're right. I'm changing my opinion. And this matter was taught to me by Antoninus. Davar Zelim, not Antoninus, the Talmud tells us. Rabbi Judah the Prince declares, this I learned from Antoninus. And then he says, you know what? I have a proof from a verse. Umikrumisayaso. And there is a, a verse of scripture that proves his point. And he cites the verse of scripture, chapter 4 of Genesis, Lefetach Chatas Rovitz. So the dialogue between these two very important people, and it's part of a collection of debates that the uh, these two people had, and the leader of the Romans, the leader of the Jews, they had this discussion, when did the child get the Yetzirah? And initially, Rabbi Judah the Prince was of the opinion that it, it appears at birth. Subsequently, Antoninus responded, well, if so, the child will kick its mom and leave, so it must be that it's from the time of of birth, not from conception. And that opinion is ultimately agreed upon by all. Rabbi Judah the Prince comes around to the opinion of Antoninus, and everyone agrees, and even the, the scripture confirms the child gets the Yitzhak only at birth. So we so we have the background here of the Talmud, but here's where it gets really interesting. If you look at Rashi's commentary to the story of Jacob and Esau, Rebecca, she's pregnant, and babies are jostling and scuffling within her, and she's disturbed by it. When she passes the house of the scholarship, Jacob wants to be born. When she passes the house of idolatry, well, Esau wants to be born. She goes to the prophet. And what does the prophet tell her? There are two nations within you. And look at Rashi's commentary there. You won't believe what Rashi says. 
Rashi in his commentary to Genesis chapter 25. Rashi says, wait a minute. The way the verse, the way the word is spelled, the word goyim, which means nations, is usually spelled a gimel and then a vav, and then a yud, and then a mem. But the way it's spelled in the Torah, it's not gimel vav yud mem, it's gimel yud yud mem. It's misspelled, or it's spelled differently. It's spelled not goyim, but gayim, which means proud ones. There's two proud ones within you. The Rashi says, why, why does the Torah misspell the word goyim? You know what Rashi says? Zeh, Rebbe, Antoninus. This is referring to Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. When the prophet is telling Rebekah, that you have two nations within you, he's also telling her that there are two proud ones, two great proud ones who represent these two personalities within you, Jacob and Esau, and that is Rabbi Judah the Prince from the side of Jacob and Marcus Aurelius Antoninus from the side of Esau. He's the proud one of Esau. So wait a minute. We have two people. Again, the Talmud, the, the, the verse says there are two proud ones within you. And what does Rashi say? That's Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. And subsequently, when they are born, so there's, what, what is it that means? There's like talks about reincarnation. What is that that means? Put that aside. Just look at the commentary of Rashi. Ze Rabbi Antoninus. This is a reference to Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. And those two people, the Talmud records, they have a debate. When do you have the eight Sahara? And initially, Rabbi Judah the Prince says, well, you have it from conception. And if that was the, if that was the conclusion, it made sense. Okay, you have Yitzhak from conception. So Esav is, he is um, drawn to idolatry. But that's not what the Talmud concludes. Talmud says, no, no, there is no Yitzhak. And who tells us that? Who are the authors of that? concept of, 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 of this principle, that there is no Yetzirah before birth, it's the same two people that we're told are inside the utero when our question is, is being raised. It's a kind of a, a mind-blowing connection. The Talmud records the debate between Roger the Prince and Antoninus and Jacob and Esau, Rashi tells us, are Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus and, of course, this very much amplifies our question. The very same people who conclude in the Talmud that the Yetzirah does not exist prior to birth, they are exhibiting, or at least Antoninus slash Asaph, is exhibiting a penchant, a desire, a proclivity, an attraction to idolatry, which we only imagine can be the byproduct of a Yetzirah. Now, I'll add another, another question here. I had to, by the way, this was all condensed like into seven or eight minutes. We're not even, we're like halfway done here. <laughs> Just to get a sense of, you know, of, of how, you know, it's a tough crowd, you know, especially everyone's drinking and they want to chat, they want to sing. And I want to speak, you know, you know me. I want to speak. I want to orate. But anyhow, listen to this question. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, used to very much, uh, very frequently cite a teaching in the Zohar. The Zohar says that if a person did not have a Yetzirah for immorality, 
they would have no zest, no excitement in the pursuit of Torah study. That's what the Zohar says. The excitement that can be channeled towards very bad, illicit behavior when channeled towards Torah, it gives a certain excitement and freshness and novelty to Torah. So there's like a good way to channel what would otherwise be a, a very problematic impulse. So here's here's another question. Our problem was with, with Esav. If there's no Yitzhah before birth, how does Esav want to go do idolatry? We'll ask the same question about Jacob. If there's no Yetzirah before birth and you need Yetzirah to have a desire, a zest, a passion for Torah study, how was Jacob desirous of studying Torah? Esau's desire for sin, well, that flies in the face of the, of the Talmud's conclusion that there's no Yetzirah before birth. But Jacob's pursuit of Torah likewise raises the same question. How was Jacob so desirous of Torah that he wanted to be born when Rebecca passed the academy, well, he had no Yitzharah, and that's the force that gives a, gives someone a, a, a deep desire for Torah study. These are all our questions. And here's the answer. When the debate was posed, Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus, when does a child get a Yitzharah? When does a baby, I'll speak correctly, a zygote, is it a zygote or an embryo or a fetus or a child? When did they get a Yitzhak? Well, what stage of the development? So the story of Jacob and Esau would tell us all that the Yitzhak appears even before birth. Because after all, we see Esau being desirous of idolatry and Jacob being desirous of Torah. And we know that desire both for good and for bad, are the product of the Yitzhahara. So Rabbi Judah the Prince quite sensibly says, it must be, at least initially he says, it must be that the the Yitzhahara appears at conception. Look at the story of Jacob and Esau. It's, it's proof. Jacob and Esau, that's you and me, right? On some level, on some dimension. And what does Antoninus respond Imkain, if so, boet beimo viyotse. If so, the child would kick its mother and go out. That's what Antoninus responds. The child would kick its, if the child had Yitzhara, it would kick its mother and go out. This is exactly what happened in Jacob and Asaph. Both of them were very, very desirous to be born. In respective, in the respective uh, contexts. Jacob, when they passed the academy, Asaph, when they passed the idolatry, and they were both stirring. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't actually be born. They stirred, they moved, they jostled, they were interested. But they stayed inside, right? So Antonius says, no, no, no. If the child actually had a Yetzara, they would kick in its mom and they would be born. And you know what we did not do? We weren't born. And therefore it's a proof that we did not have the Yetzara. And thus these two citations are very complementary. Jacob wanted to be born, but wasn't born. Asaph wanted to be born, but wasn't born. And therefore, that is proof, says Antoninus, that there is no Yetzirah. Yes, 
They jostled. Yes, they stirred. Yes, they sought to leave. They made a move to leave. But ultimately, they remained inside. They did not leave. And had they had the Yetzirah, they would have kicked their mom and actually been born. This is the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the force that compels, that encourages, that amplifies a desire and helps it override any barriers or inhibitions or blockades or obstacles that may lie in his path. Esav, he had some sort of predisposition towards idolatry. And the morale talks about that. What was exactly that desire? But it was not the Yetzahara. He had a certain essential predisposition towards this. And he probably could have channeled that in a proper way as well. Had he had the Yetzahara coupled with that innate desire, he would have battled through all resistance and been born. And on the flip side, Jacob had a certain predisposition, a certain proclivity towards good, towards the Torah, and had he had the Yetzirah, he too would have kicked his way out. But he didn't. This is the power of the Yetzirah. This is perhaps the definition of the Yetzirah. It's the force that amplifies the desires of a person and enables it, enables those desires to be actualized and to be implemented and overriding and overcoming any inhibitions. And it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. I'll give you an example of this. The Talmud tells us that the men of the great assembly they made a very interesting petition. They made a petition. They told God, we don't want the Yetzirah for idolatry. We don't want it. This is the force that contributed towards the temple being destroyed. And this is what caused the sanctuary to be burned, and this is what caused the righteous to be killed, and this is what caused the Jewish people to be exiled from their land. This desire for idolatry, it's so destructive. You only gave it to us, they tell God, for our benefit, so we could overcome it and receive reward. We don't want this burden. We don't want not it and not its reward. And therefore, please get rid of it. That was their petition. And it didn't uh, suffice, subsist with simply requesting. They fasted for three days in prayer to petition God to change the world and to remove the Yetzirah for idolatry. And guess what? They were successful. And God signaled his acquiescence to their request by sending them a message. Talma tells us what, what happened. A note, a document, fell down from heaven. And on it, it said one word, MS, emet, truth. And the Talmud says, this is the signet of God. The signet of God is truth. And this symbolizes, this signifies that he is in agreement with our petition. 
And the Talmud goes on to describe the Yetzirah and where it came from, what it looked like, and what they did with it. But they were able to conquer the Yetzirah of idolatry. And the Talmud proceeds and says, well, you know, once we're at it, let's get rid of the other idolatry for immorality, for illicit relations. Yeah, it's a propitious time. Let's get rid of all the Yetzirah. So they prayed for that and they got that as well. And then a couple days later, they need a fresh egg for a sick person. And guess what? Even the animals stopped procreating. I said, oh, well, this is, this is maybe too far because you get rid of the idolatry, the, the, you get rid of the desire for idolatry. There's nothing wrong. There's, you don't lose anything. You get rid of the, the desire for immorality. And before you know it, no one is procreating. And everyone said, okay, this one we actually need. <laughs> this is what we need. So I said, uh, but wouldn't it be great to maybe neuter it a little bit, uh, mitigate it a little bit? Let's, let's try to kind of, let's get rid of, get rid of half of it. So we'll have it in, in a kosher version, but not in a, improper version. They said, no, no, you, you can't do that because there's no half measures. You see, they're all or nothing. He says, you know what? Let's blind it. So they blind, they blinded it and they were successful, the Talmud tells us, in curbing the desire that people used to have for their relatives, for their like mothers and sisters. It used to be people were desirous of their close blood relatives in the same way they were desirous of of other women, maybe even more so. So they blinded the Yitzhara, so the person is no longer desirous of their their mother and their sister. That is the conclusion of the Talmud. It's featured in two places, the book of Yoma and the book of Sanhedrin. Okay. Here's the question. The men of the great assembly, they made a petition, a very ambitious petition. They're going to get God to change the world. This desire for idolatry, we're going to eliminate it. And they they pray and they fast for three days. And guess what? Lo and behold, they get divine approval. The Almighty accedes to their request. And he sends them a message. And a document descends from heaven, and it says the word MS, which is like the signet of God. Okay, we have a deal. Let's note this parachuted from heaven. Oh, there we go. Okay. The Almighty agrees. Wait a minute. Of the men of the Great Assembly, of this group of people, were numbered several prophets. And in fact, the actual Talmud, the Talmud says that they, they got control of this Yetzirah and it, it was, it was like a fiery lion and they didn't know what it was. The, the Talmud itself says that the prophet tells them this is the Yetzirah of idolatry. So the Talmud acknowledges that there are prophets amongst them. So why are they getting this divine telegram parachuted from heaven? If the Almighty wants to signal his acquiescence to their petition, he should just tell the prophet. Isn't that what a prophet does? Doesn't the prophet serve as a go-between, as an intermediate between God and the nation? Why was it necessary for God to signal his approval with this document? And here's the answer. They wanted something. They wanted to eliminate the Yetzirah for idolatry. 
they have to know what that entails. If you are eliminating the answer of idolatry, something else will go as well. There's always a balance. We're told there's always a balance. If there's great holiness, there must be a counterweight. If there's idolatry, there must be a counterweight. And the counterweight for idolatry is prophecy. And thus, if you want to eliminate the desire for idolatry, necessarily you will terminate prophecy. The only way that someone can have the ability to storm the heavens, to penetrate the heavens, a human, a lowly, mortal, fragile, fallible human can override everything. The vast gulf that separates the human and God. The only way the human could batter through that resistance is only with a super-duper Yetzirah. Not just the Yetzirah for the ones that we're familiar with, but the Yetzirah for idolatry, which was way, uh, a thousand times stronger. You want this? Great. But you know what you're forfeiting. You're forfeiting idolatry. I'll still send you a little telegram. But the idea of God communicating directly, that's over. That's the power of the Yitzhah Yes, it can lead to terrible devastation. It can lead to destruction, lights that are described in the Talmud, the nation being slaughtered, the righteous people being consumed, the temple being destroyed, the sanctuary being burned, the nation going into exile. But you know what else it can bring with it? The ability to override all barriers, break down all barriers, even the barriers that are as stiff as those separating the human and God. We cited the Midrash. Midrash says, God saw all that he made and behold, it was good. Tov, me'od, very good, exceedingly good, says the Midrash. What is Tov? That's the answer Tov. What's me'od? What's super good? Exceptionally good? That's the Yitzharah. You want to achieve good things? You need Yitzhar Tov. You want to achieve exceptional things? You want to achieve stratospheric greatness? You can only do that with a Yitzharah. You want prophecy? You need to have a Yitzharah that's so destructive, potentially, that it could completely annihilate all of the great accomplishments that we have, the the temple and the sanctuary and the nation and the righteous and the Jewish people's settlement of the land, all that is destroyed by this Yetzirah. And you need that to achieve prophecy. The only way to have Tov Ma'od super good is with the Yetzirah. That's the only way to do it. Jacob wants to study Torah. That's great. He jostles, he moves, but he, he, he hits a brick wall. Not quite brick wall, but effectively brick wall. He wants, he's so desirous. It doesn't matter. He, you can't overcome. If you had the Yetzirah, you would be bowed by Yotze. You would kick your way out. You'd overcome everything. Both for good and for bad. Had Esav had the Yetzirah, he would have not just desired to do idolatry, when his mom passed the idolatry house, he would have kicked and forced his way out. It would have paved the path for his worst impulses. Had Jacob had the same force, 
he too would have battered through all resistance, overcome all barriers, demolished all obstacles, and gotten what he wanted. That's the power and the opportunity of the Sahara. We say in the Shema, Ve'ahavta, you should love Hashem your God. Bechol levavcha, with all your hearts. Hearts. They just translate it as heart, because most people don't have two hearts that they know of, at least. Maybe multiple ventricles, but not multiple hearts. But the actual word for hearts is levavcha. If you want to say just your heart, it would say libcha. So the Talmud says, wait a minute, how should you love Hashem your God with all your hearts? Only got one heart. Says the Talmud, the heart is a reference to your desire. Bishnei Yitzarecha, you have to love Hashem your God with all your hearts, with both of them. With the good heart and the bad heart. With the Yitzar Tov, the good heart, and the Yitzara, the bad heart. With both of them, you must love Hashem your God. Talmud tells us, you have to love Hashem your God with your bad heart, with your evil inclination. How do you do that? You do that by harnessing its power of tov ma'od, of very good, of enabling the great people to become prophets, of enabling Jacob to battle through resistance. That's how you deploy the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the other heart, in service of God, in, in service of love of God, by using it to amplify and empower those desires. Now, when I finished speaking, someone told me a great story. He said that um, the great Chazonish, who's the greatest sage in the world, passed away 70 years ago. He uh, was once with a student, and they went to the they went to the water. They went to the water. They went to the, the Mediterranean. They said, we're going to go take a little break for the you know, time between the semesters. And he went with his student. Because imagine what it's like to go swimming with a chazonish. It's like, a, what an experience that is. So they're in the sea. And the student, he feels some splashing behind him. And he turns around and sees the chazonish splashing, splashing him. Which is an unbelievable thing. It's like, what's going on? He says, you have to understand. The same impulse that I have to splash you that's the same impulse that enables me to write my great books. It enables me to over, to, to overcome all the difficulties and the challenges of trying to figure out Torah at unfathomable depths. It's the same thing. And the child, child went through trauma. Child, child forgot all of Torah. The candle that was upon its head is now within them. And where'd that come from? That came from the Yitzharah. So you and I would say that's that's a reason to be somber and to mourn. Well, of course, you know, we have to celebrate the child. But from the child's perspective, the child knew all of Torah, forgot it all. Had no Yitzharah, now has a Yitzharah. So if we're really going to have an event to mark this transformation, it should be a somber one. That's what you and I would have said. But now we understand why it's a cause for celebration. Beforehand, the child, well, it could have accessed good. It could have been good. Yeah, well, you want good things. It's so nice. Well, when I finally I was joking, I was like, we know those kids. The kids who don't have a Yetzirah. 
I was, I was, I was like trying to do a little stand up a little bit. I said, you know those kids who are like, oh, is it time for to do all my homework yet? Can I brush my teeth already? Is it time to go to sleep? Can I finish the broccoli? Well, you know those kids. That's great. It's a nice thing. The ones who are capable of achieving great things are the ones that have a fire in the belly. They have, they have a tenacity and a fierceness. That's the answer within them. That's the fire within them. And if they find a way to use that, it will be not only good, it will be exceedingly good. And of course, the loss of Torah, that's something that is the result of the arrival of the Yitzhah. And something we have to note and we mark it and there's chickpeas on the table. We lament it to a very, very minor extent. But we also know that there's tremendous joy and power and opportunity that's now available that was not available previously. Because you know what we're celebrating? We're celebrating the arrival of the Yitzhahara. And that is a cause to celebrate. Because now they have the ability to not only want good, but to want good with such power and such ferocity and such strength and tenacity and fortitude that they will kick down all barriers and get what they want. And that is the reason why we are celebrating. May we all weaponize our abilities, our good abilities, our good desires, our strengths towards the pursuit of righteousness. Love Hashem our God with all your hearts, all of them. The good one, of course. The bad one, too. The bad one is what enables us to achieve transcendental greatness. It enables us to shatter all barriers, tear down the wall, any wall that's blockading us from our greatness. You may want it, and that's great. And the Yetzirah Tov will say, I really, really, really want it. But nothing will help you like the Yetzirah. When channeled properly, it enables us to overcome all obstacles. And of course, we hope and we pray that our young son indeed loves Hashem, his God, with all his hearts, is able to use his abilities for good, and is able to become someone that makes the entire family, of course, the community and the nation and the Almighty proud. And uh, tomorrow, please God, you'll you'll find out the name that we've selected by the by the Bris, please God. And uh, we hope we can uh, incorporate him into this great nation, into the covenant of Abraham. And uh, please, I will see good things from him and from all of his siblings. And I appreciate your attention. I hope you have a wonderful day and a fantastic week. And of course, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.